You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey there, it's Max. I'm sort of losing my voice, but that doesn't mean I can't tell you about one of our sponsors this week before we start the show. Uh, It's 2015. Everyone is a writer in 2015. Whether you're working on a novel or writing a press release, website copy, a report, you're tweeting, it's a white paper, Uh, even if you're just carefully revising an email to your boss asking for a raise, writing has become a huge part of our day-to-day responsibilities. Uh, And just like any skill, Writing doesn't get better without instruction and practice. That's why our friends at Marketing Profs University have created the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. It's an online course. It starts June 11th, and you'll learn from over a dozen of the best and brightest instructors in the world of marketing writing. Uh, It's entirely online, so you can learn from your computer, your tablet, your smartphone, whatever and wherever works best for you. Uh, Here's what you should do. If you're interested, go to mprofs.com slash longform, use the promo code longform, and you're going to get $200 off the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. Uh, Plus, you'll get over a grand worth of marketing prof seminars, classes, and video tutorials for free just for registering. So go check it out, mprofs.com slash longform. Write a better email to your boss. Okay, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky. Max Linsky is from Longform. Hey, Max. Hey, Evan. Aaron is still traveling. Aaron's traveling. He's in Vietnam. You should follow him on Instagram. He's uh, posting all kinds of amazing pictures. And uh, without Aaron, I've been like talking for the two of us and I've lost my, lost my voice. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing you didn't do this week's episode. Yeah, you did it. Who did you talk to? I talked to Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson is a longtime writer for the Times Magazine, New York Times Magazine, among other places. He wrote a book that I love and I recommend if no one's ever, if you haven't read it, uh, called The Man Who Tried to Save the World. And he has a more recent book about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, and he's also, uh, interestingly, John Lee Anderson of The New Yorker's brother. They, is that like the most powerful brother journalistic duo? There probably is another one, but in terms of like long form stuff, like I don't know another sibling. It's like them and then right below is Tucker and Buckley Carlson. Wow, I wouldn't have thought of that one. <laughs> but then there's a husband and wife. There's some husband and wife. Yeah. Michael Paninini, Sarah Corbett. That's I, a power team. I want to have them on together and like talk about their journalistic marriage. <laughs> that's a different kind of show. <laughs> it's a different show. That's an episode that's coming later. One more thing, though, about this episode that you're about to listen to. Uh, Scott Anderson wrote this incredible story in uh, 2009, and it ran in the print version of GQ. It was about a bombing in Russia, and it ran in print 
but uh, it was uncomfortable for Condé Nast. They did not want it to appear in Russia, so they pulled it from the Russian edition of the magazine and also pulled it from the internet. So it's never appeared online before uh, until now. Yes. I don't know if they pulled it as much as they just never published it. I don't know if they put it up and took it down. No, I think they never they put it up. Never put they it never up put anywhere. it up. But they yeah. like they uh, tried to avoid, basically like pretend like it didn't exist. They also didn't tease it on the cover. Right. Uh, they were pretty scared of it being read. And uh, Scott very graciously has allowed us to reprint that story uh, in full on longform.org. So it's up right now. It's also in the show notes, but you should read it. It's an incredible story. Yeah. What about sponsors? Uh, Evan, I'm not sure uh, after this interview if you're feeling sort of like uh, excited, maybe emotional. Maybe you wanted to tell your friends mm-hmm. about this interview that you had done. You could... Uh, oh, I don't even know how I would start. Here's an idea. Here's like one, one way you could have done it would uh, be to sign up for a tiny letter and send them an email newsletter. Tiny Letter is a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good people of MailChimp. They continue to sponsor this show, and we continue to give them a giant hug for doing so. You know what What they like, I think, is like you go on Twitter sometimes, and you see uh, people say, hey, I just signed up for your Tiny Letter. I heard about it on the long-form podcast. Yes, that is a thing that happens. Yeah. That I can't believe that none of us have started Tiny Letters yet. What's I wrong like with us? We're trying to stay... Uh, unbiased in a way I'm so biased though I love Tiny Letter anyway thank you Tiny Letter and here's Evan with Scott Anderson so welcome to the podcast thanks for thanks 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 for for coming Um, this is a sort of particularly unique one for me I mean we've had a lot of people on obviously like a lot of people that we admire um but i feel like this is a sort of rare one for me in that i feel like slightly starstruck talking to you um and it sort of comes out never happened before (laughs) (laughs) you've come to the right place yeah i guess so um i've got a copy of the man who tried to save the world here which was a book that i i don't know it just really captivated me i think i read it at a time in my career when uh i was just getting into journalism and i and it's sort of like opened up an idea of sort of like what a narrative journalist could be for me. And I, I kind of wanted to to start back there because I was reading through a lot of your work, uh, both old and, and going all the way, I mean, new and going all the way back. And I kept coming back to this uh, Harper's story, which I think was maybe the progenitor of the book or it was early on in the book. And there's so much wrapped up in this story. I think it's Prisoners of War was the name name of the story. And at that time, you how long had you been a sort of, you know, war correspondent for war correspondent? About 10 years. I, my brother and I had, had done this in the mid-80s. We had done this book called War Zones, which uh-huh. was a... It was a it was a oral history. It was a collection of interviews from five different wars around the world. So we spent we spent like a year and a half going from one war zone to the next around the world. Prior to that, I had gone to I had been in Beirut in 1983 right. when the Marines were there. Uh-huh. But the, the the book with my brother was really the first time it, it, you know it, for extended period that I was covering war. You had not previously been covering wars, and you you went to these places. You actually went in order to try to understand right these I, places. Yeah, the the basic idea. Well, we we chose five wars around the world, and the idea was to to pick all different geographical regions. So it was El Salvador, Northern Ireland, Sri Lanka, Israel, and Uganda. And um, and the idea in each one was, because these are all kind of irregular wars, mm-hmm. was to 
kind of go to the ground zero or one of the ground zeros in that conflict and to talk to the combatants on both sides, but mainly to talk to civilians caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a grim project, <laughs> I have yeah. to say, okay. um, but, but really but fascinating, too. And, and, and it's fascinating to see the parallels from one place to the next. You know, you can't. On the surface, you can't get much more different than, say, Sri Lanka or, or Uganda to Belfast, Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. But the pressures on the people were very similar from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. And, and for civilians, it's, you know, it's, as always, it's about trying to cut deals to stay safe mm-hmm. um, in whatever form that takes, whether it means, you know, informing to one side or the other or, or, or just currying favor. Um, so it's a, a kind of a, a, a constant dance for, for civilians caught in, caught in the middle of these things. So part of what the Harper's piece does is it actually it sort of cuts between uh, some of what became the book about Chechnya and 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 some of your experiences from reporting the previous book. And uh, a lot of it is about sort of what it's like to be a foreign uh, war correspondent and the and the effect that it had on you. And, and reading it, you started fairly young. Pretty right? young. I, um, I was 26, 27 when we did War Zones. 23 when I went to Beirut. Because so. one, one thing that occurred to me was I, I was thinking about uh, sort of how did this, how did these experiences sort of transform you and you write a, a lot about that. But it's in a way, it's sort of like, can you remember a time before you sort of uh, witnessed atrocities? I mean, I do have a memory <laughs> prior to that. Um, but it, it certainly has informed my my adult life. And I think that and you, you mentioned the, the Harper's piece I did. It, I, there was an experience that happened to me in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. which really traumatized me for a long time. Um, and basically, I mean, and the, and the articles about that, it basically my brother and I were with the uh, Tamil Tigers in this remote area of, of uh, eastern Sri Lanka. And and it was real Lord of the Flies time. They had been getting whacked by the army and, and you know, all these 14, 15 year old kids swaddled in weapons with little cyanide capsules around their neck that, you know, they were going to they were going to die if, if the army came in on them. Uh, so it was, it was just an incredibly tense, paranoid situation. And they brought out this woman that they had been torturing, mm-hmm. um, this, this woman who's a, a mother of seven kids. And they said that she'd been a spy, that she was passing information to the to the army. And they basically sat her down across from us and, and let let us try to bargain for her life in this in this funny way. Or at least that's I mean, it was a kind of a cat and mouse game. And so we tried. We t- we started to, you know, asked what kind of information she passed. And, you know, and then, if, you know, said, oh, isn't that important information? It's like, well, you know, can't you, you know, spare her in this case? And she's got s- seven kids and things. But at a certain point, we realized we, the, the, the whole mood in this hut in the middle of the jungle was just changing. Mm-hmm. And they started becoming very suspicious of us. And it was this awful moment where we just had to stop. And the woman knew what was happening. And she, she under, I mean, it was kind of a shocking moment when we realized she actually spoke quite a bit of English. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's sort of pleading for yeah, her life. Yeah. So the, the scene is... Yeah, no, it was, it was, I mean, it's one of the worst things I've ever gone through. Yeah. And, and I'll never forget this moment where, I mean, she was directly across from me, you know, three feet away and, you know, looking into my eyes saying, you know, save me, save me. And at a certain point, just having to look away. And uh, I'll never forget the sound of her just, and she was kind of in a little wicker chair and um, her just kind of sitting back and that, that kind of scrunching sound of her. And it was just like, that was it. It was over. Um... We weren't there when they killed her, but they they killed her shortly after. 
And so that that experience really messed me up for a long time. And I, and actually, I stayed away from war for a while. I, I came back to the States, and I did temp work. I was a Kelly girl <laughs> <laughs> in Boston for working on, working on a novel. And uh, I, I just it really just kind of lost myself for a couple of years. I didn't want to go back to war. Um, and then uh, ended up. I couldn't do, you know, office temp work forever, so I ended up going to the Iowa Writers Workshop for a couple of years, and then it was that kind of after that I, when I moved to New York, and then and and then going to Chechen was really my my return to going into war zones. And yeah, because reading that Harper's story, I mean, you sound like someone at the end of something, so right. someone who's sort of come come to a point where you're grappling with something that makes it difficult to do at this point. Like, almost as if when you first started out, a sort of lack of awareness helped you keep going. And then at a certain point, you this this significant moment kind of right. transformed that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's very easy when you're when you're starting out. I, I, I can remember being in, in Beirut, and that was in the summer of 83. It was, I left Beirut just before the Marines got blown up, and which I think was in September. I was there in August. And I remember, you know, I was just a stupid kid. I I would I had been knocking around Europe for five months with a, a girlfriend, mm-hmm. uh, hitchhiking and you know just backpacking, saved up money bartending in Washington, and we got to Athens and we ran out of money and I just didn't want to go home and and you know I'd always heard about stringing. I had no idea what stringing really meant. <laughs> I don't know if anyone really does. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure. Do people still use that term? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess they do. So I, I remember I went into the AP office at Athens and talked to somebody there and said, yeah, I'm interested in stringing. And he goes, well, nothing ever happens in Greece. It said, you know, if, you, if you're serious about you know, looking for work, go to Beirut. So with our last few dollars, we got on, I, I dragged my girlfriend to Beirut. And it was just madness. It was just like from the get-go. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, having never seen war before, there was some, there was a kind of like a, I just felt almost like a, it was like I was watching a movie. The things happening around. And this me. is Beirut in the sort of bombed out yeah. snipers in the streets. Snipers kind of in the kind of streets of. and explosions going on all the time. And um, so you know, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't do brave things. I did stupid things because it just, I, it, it just the idea that something could happen to me what just seemed, you know, it wasn't my conflict. It was just dumb. You know, it, it wasn't my conflict. Why would anything happen to me? And so that was kind of my first my first introduction to it, and then it got much more serious when we, I was doing war zones um, with with uh, my brother John Lee, and then this experience in Sri Lanka just kind of really put a zap on me. And then, what enabled you to to come back? I mean, what what enabled you to say, okay, now now I am going to do this again? It wasn't strictly boredom with uh, with temp work. Part of it was. <laughs> Not to get too self-analytical, but I, I think part of it was uh, I, I think that there was this kind of rescue fantasy I had. I went to Chechnya. This this American disaster relief expert, Fred Cuny, had disappeared there. Um, it was kind of famous, and well, actually, you know, very well known in the disaster relief community. He was called the Master of Disaster, and he'd been to I don't know forty wars. How did you know about his? I didn't. I, I remember seeing a small article in the New York Times that this relief worker had disappeared. I'd never heard of him before. Uh-huh. And then the New York Times came to me, uh, editor at the magazine, and asked me if I wanted to to do a story of of. And the original the original idea was I was just going to go and talk to his family in Texas and. 
I went to Texas. His he was uh, Fred Cuny was fifty, and he had a son who was at that time was about twenty five. And I went to Texas and interviewed his son, and we really hit it off. We became really good friends, kind of instantaneously. And the, the son Craig had gone and looked for his father for six weeks or so in Chechnya, mm-hmm. and um, and then it, it, and kind of based on my friendship with with Craig Cuny, I, I went back to the New York Times Magazine and said, you know, I think I should go there. Well, meanwhile, there's this scene fr- with him, the son, basically telling you not to go, right, and right, then telling you not to do anything stupid, right? Because it, it, I mean, this, uh, yeah, he, I mean, the, even the son, and he had a, it's kind of quasi embassy protection, but uh, you know, even he had a few close calls there. So I think I had this kind of, uh, um, and probably, probably largely because of the experience in Sri Lanka, it was this, uh, you know, this idea that maybe Fred Cuny was still alive, and that I could find him, and that I could save him <laughs> and as, as silly as that sounds <laughs> in retrospect but i think that really is what what kind of drove me and again in hindsight and not even in hindsight but pretty much i mean very close hindsight it really kind of crazily stupid things and it, i mean chechnya was by far the worst war zone i've ever been in mm-hmm. just both sides or, or just you know utter savagery of both sides i was only there for for about three and a half weeks but I and the people I was with came very close to getting killed several times. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how crazy Chechen was. So, we, you know, we were there for three, three and a half weeks, and we were mostly staying in kind of, you know, burnt-out buildings and, you know, just really traveling in the rough. And um, I didn't didn't bathe for the whole time I was there. I got back to Moscow and I took my first shower in three and a half weeks. And, and uh, after I looked in the mirror, and I had this little shock of white hair. I'd never had a white hair before, and I've never got another one since. <laughs> really? <laughs> this little shock that of white hair. three weeks. <laughs> it's three weeks in Chechnya. That is the, the most intense stress that you yeah. could possibly face. Yeah. Well, you also, uh, you were there with this photographer, Stanley Green. Who right. I'm also, I, I got to work with him on a story one time, and he's, I, he's, I feel like he's a fascinating character. He really is. Like Stanley's amazing. Extraordinary. You describe him like dressed to head, head to toe and black black yeah. that's like that's when i saw him he was exactly the same way yeah but. no Stanley's amazing and i really and i think that so stanley was a photographer and he's, he's he's a black american and um i really think the only reason we got out alive was because of stanley i mean first he's very very uh quick-witted mm-hmm. But also, you know, the Chechens. The Chechens were. I, I guess I look a little Russian. So the Chechens, the rebels, were always convinced I was I was uh, FSB or KGB. But then, they, how to explain the black guy? And 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 then the the Russians always thought I was like you know working for that I was CIA. But they figured, well, you know, even the CIA is not stupid enough to send a black guy. <laughs> so, so I, I really, I really credit a lot of uh, a lot of our longevity to to Stanley's presence. <laughs> Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things with Scott and Evan, and I'll tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors this week. It's Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors in the world, all for just a quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Uh, Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7 
automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the index fund revolution and who have written some of the most important books in finance. Uh, What else can I tell you about Wealthfront? They manage over $2 billion dollars billion with a B in client assets, and they've saved millions of dollars on taxes for their clients. Uh, so here's what you should do. Go to Wealthfront.com slash longform. Your first 10 grand will be managed for free. Wealthfront.com slash longform. One thing I should say, I feel like this is very clear, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities, and investing people uh, involves risk. You, uh, you might lose your money if you invest. Now I've said that, which means it's time to get back to Scott and Evan. Would you describe, uh, you know, doing things like in that book and and even in previous reporting trips of doing things that you you say now were like stupid or ill-advised or something like that? Do you feel like in the moment you got caught up in the story and telling the story? Do you think in the back of your mind somewhere you're thinking this will be a better story for me to tell if I go do that? It might be partly that. I think it's something else. The, the kind of journalism I do, I've never done hard news reporting. I've been, and and I, I tend to I, I tend to not be part of the I, do, I tend to not go to places where there's a whole horde of other journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I go to a place and I'm there for you know for, for a pretty extended period of time, anywhere from like four to six weeks usually, and I'm usually. Uh, Trying to find some small story that plays that plays to a, a, on a larger canvas, so I spend a lot of time with with the people that I'm focusing on, and I think I just come to to kind of emotionally identify with them. Um, I, I, probably the most extreme example of that was I did a story in it's actually the summer of 2001. It was right before September 11th. I, I did this story on these um, Turkish hunger strikers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this, it basically was this, this, this kind of leftist group that had um, been outlawed by the Turkish government, and uh, they had gone on a hunger strike, and, uh, or what they called a death fast. And when I got there, 29 people had already already died. Nobody had come off. Nobody had ever come off the death fast. And um, when I was there, there were 11 people who were on the, at varying stages of death fast. So I and my photographer were there for six weeks and going out, and these the 11 people who were dying were staying in four different houses in one small little working-class neighborhood in Istanbul. And every day I was going and talking to these people, and I just came to to become very close to them, and is some in, in particular. And it ended up going to one of the women who was on the death fast going to her home village yeah. and bringing her father to Istanbul to try to get try to ha- talk his daughter off the death fast so it became really it really kind of crossed some journalistic boundaries and in in that moment do you have to talk to your editors or anything like that or you you're you're on your own I'm on my own yeah i i hardly ever talk to when i'm out in the field i hardly ever talk to to anybody back in new york mm-hmm. um the girl whose father I did bring to, uh, I brought to Istanbul, she actually did end up leaving the, the death fast, and and she was the first one ever to do so, and so I, th- I probably was it was a result of my inter- intervention, but I also I don't know whether, you know, did I see something in her from the very beginning that 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 made me suspect she might come off, or did I invent that and just by pushing it make it happen. Um, I don't know, you know, but but it was definitely a case where 
you know, the, the, the traditional boundaries of, of, of journalistic sort of, you know, objectivity <laughs> and kind yeah. of collapse. But I've, I've noticed that throughout a lot of your work, you, you take that idea that sort of even what you just did sort of reflecting on, well, was was I a part of it or what role did I play? And that's actually woven into the piece, the yeah, pieces sometimes themselves. sometimes it is. You know, that's another, it's not tra- traversing a boundary, but that's sort of another way of approaching it that's not the sort of hard news approach, which is to say, I'm recognizing that I'm here, I'm having an impact. But not only that, in that piece you describe trying to talk other people off of and then sort of like losing your nerve in some cases or they're already too far gone and it sort of becomes like a more personal wrenching story. And is that, did that style, do do you feel like that developed naturally or was there a point at which you, someone asked you to put more of yourself into a, into a story? Yeah, it's funny on that particular story, the the Turkish hunger strikers, um, I think, I mean, you know, I also write fiction I've written two novels. And so I think I've, I think I've always approached journalism from the, the, what's always paramount to me is trying to tell a story. That was the story for it was for the New York Times Magazine, it, and it was probably more of myself injected in it than I think anything else I did for them, and that was actually at their instigation. I mean, I think that they they just felt that that it, somehow it worked better to have more of myself in it. But it, usually in my journalism, I try to not have myself as a as a very prominent figure mm-hmm. in it. I think I must I p- partly have that Harper's piece also foremost in my mind, which was a piece of that, very right. much of that theme, right? Uh, as as compared to other ones. So you, so you've mentioned your brother John Lee a couple of times. So I would definitely I would be journalistically remiss if I did not investigate how two of the uh, sort of like <laughs> foremost storytelling war correspondents of our time uh, emerged from the same family. So <laughs> I, I'm first of all curious a little bit about what in your upbringing sort of led both you and your brother in that direction, do you think? Well, we grew up overseas. Our, our father was an a agricultural advisor for the, for the American government. And so we, we grew up in East Asia, in Taiwan and Korea and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And then we have three sisters. So we really didn't spend any time in the States other than, the, you know, brief, uh, what they call home leave, like summer vacations every two years. Um, we didn't live in the States really until we were teenagers. And I think that by that point, it was just really too late to try to graft ourselves onto a society that we didn't really know very well. And, and certainly in my brother's case, I, I think I think John Lee's lived a, maybe a total of five years in the, in, in the States, mm-hmm. you know, in out of 57 years. Um, I mean, as soon as we got to the States, he immediately started looking around, at, you know, a, a way to get the hell out. And so we both started, we, you know, we grew up without television. And I think that I think that had I mean from a, from the time I was a little kid our mother was a children's book author, yeah. writer, so we were encouraged to write and I think that you know we from a very really early age we kind of we were always I can remember always writing as a kid and that kind of suggests itself as a way to get back overseas um, and I, I, one other thing and I, you know it's it's it took me an incredibly long time to kind of appreciate the significance of this. It was really only a few years ago. We, where where we lived growing up, we were in kind of small American communities, um, uh-huh. but but really like rather small. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 
but really rather small. And, and you know, I mean, every everybody's childhood is completely normal to them. But it, it occurred to me how odd it was the way we were growing up that outside of this small, outside of our family and the small group of Amer- usually Americans around us, the, the world at large around us, the society at large, we couldn't understand them. We said, I didn't speak Chinese or Korean, and they couldn't understand me. And it's, I think it's an unusual way. I think it makes you this, it makes you very attuned to looking for small clues of how you communicate with people. It makes you, I mean, on a very unconscious level, I think I've always been very attuned to like watching people's body language. And there's certain universalities about the way just people interact with other people that goes beyond language. So I, and so I, th- I think that really from a very early age, I, I was attuned to because I'm really not from anywhere, it, it, it's, it's kind of, it, I think it, I, I'm able rather quickly to, to get a sense of a, of a different culture in a way that somebody, you know, may, I mean, much better journalist than me, but, but you know, born and raised in the States may not have sort of an instant comfort level being dropped in the middle of Africa or in the middle of Asia or something. Right. And, but also the, the sort of curiosity to, right. to go to the... The people, like you, you're going into these conflicts, but actually you you are going to the civilians. You're going to try to find this one person's story who's in the maelstrom of it. And I wonder, does that also derive from like being in this community that's within a larger culture that you're not a part of? It might. I, I think. I think what happened with me is when I came back to the states, and and uh, my introduction to the states wasn't wasn't a good one. It was North Florida. <laughs> Where in North Florida? Uh, Gainesville. Oh, that's, <laughs> so, where, that's where I was born. Actually. Uh, really? yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not so, you, there. so you know what I speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, my my father. Our our parents were getting divorced. My brother stayed in England. My father took me. I didn't go to ninth grade. My father took me out of school for a year and. And he and I, he bought a VW camper. He was going through a midlife crisis. He bought a VW camper and we drove from France to India and back. Um, so for a year, I had to, you know, we were going through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, just this incredible year. And then to go from that to being dropped into Gainesville, Florida and going to high school was, was really pretty brutal. And it was probably that high school experience for me where people had no frame of reference for where I had, where I had come from or what I had just, you know, done. And nor did they care particularly. And I think that it, it really, it, I mean, to the degree that I would ever try to talk about, you know, where I'd, where I'd lived or, or the kind of the adventures I'd had, you know, and I'd spent like three months in Afghanistan and just the most exotic place. I, I sort of became like a master anecdotalist, you know, and keeping things short and telling stories and telling stories. Um, and I think a lot of my sort of storytelling, you know, I write really long stories. Uh, you know, how do you get somebody to read 10,000 words about Albania? Or, or you know, Sri Lanka. You have to tell a story, and you know, and, and so I think that's always been foremost in my mind. And who of you and your brother, who kind of like got into journalism to the fir- in the first place? And did you have a similar path into doing it? I, I know you you described the Beirut you know stringer situation, but had your brother already sort of he had done some of that? And so yeah, he, could... he had. My my brother went off to. I mean, he dropped out of. Uh, 
well, he dropped out of college, but he'd never graduated from high school. It's actually only one, one high school diploma between the two of us, <laughs> and it's, it's mine. Um, you could always hold that over. <laughs> that's right. Um, and he'd gone down to South America, and he had started to he had started to you know uh, pick up doing some stories for uh, English language paper in Lima in Lima, Peru, mm-hmm. and then eventually in the, in the by the early eighties he was. He was working for Jack Anderson, the columnist in Washington, and then he, then he, when the Central America War started up, he he was hired on by um, uh, Time Magazine and moved to Salvador. Um, so he 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 got to journalism before me, and then um, I was still at that point writing bad novels <laughs> and you know waitering and bartending and stuff. And then we ended up doing the, uh, two books together, and then it was really after that that I I started doing doing journalism but he's much more the true journalist than i am he's, why, why he's, do you say that my brother's amazing he he he's so um i mean he really takes it seriously and, and he he's so dogged and so i'll, I'll give you i'll give, give you an example the last place we it was the first time we'd been in the same place together and working and Jesus, 15 years. Uh, we, it was during the Israeli offensive in Lebanon in 06. Uh-huh. Yeah, you did a Times Magazine piece yeah, from there. I yeah, I did a Times Magazine. He was there for The New Yorker. And uh, he, he got to Beirut a couple of days ahead of me. And the difference between my brother and I, it, it's kind of in a nutshell, I, I kind of deliberately do very, very little reading about a place before I go there. Um, I, I do very little background. I mean, I just have this, kind of, you know, I, because I've traveled so much, I have a kind of a basic sort of just general knowledge knocking around my head about most places. But I, I never do any reading beforehand. And I mean, maybe part of it is laziness, but part of it is that I just feel the more I read, the more I'm already on somebody else's rails of, of, of how they interpret or analyze the place. And I, so I really kind of try to go in as as kind of a blank slate. So anyway, I got, I got to Beirut a, f- a few days after my brother and I and he, he uh, were staying in the same hotel. And I go into his hotel room, and he'd already been to the English language bookstore there and bought like he had like like forty books on, on Lebanon history and politics. He had he had some book on like Lebanese parliamentary politics in the nineteen forties. It's this five hundred page volume. It's like <laughs> I mean, he just takes this. I mean, he is like. He is a true journalist, <laughs> um, and he really knows his stuff. When, when wherever he goes, he's um, and, and incredibly disciplined, incredibly dogged. And you guys, I mean, obviously you've worked together in the past. Right. You write about it in a way that seems like you're close. But is there is there any there's level of competition between you? Um, very little. Uh, very little, and I think because it's we actually, I think our writing is quite different. I think mm-hmm. that's maybe why. Yeah, and very different approaches to what we're trying to do in places. Yeah, I've never really felt that there's. I mean, he's always been a, 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 kind of my biggest booster, and, and vice versa. Yeah, I've, I, I don't think there's. It's, and it's it's odd because as kids we hated each other. I mean, we just, we fought every day I mean, physically. I mean, and he was bigger than me, so he used to kick the shit out of me. Um, but yeah, I, I, we we couldn't stand each other. And uh, but as as grownups now, there's really there's really none at all. Do you have a, a relationship where, I mean, you may not need to because you, you are already so sort of well-traveled, but you're you're going somewhere, and is he someone you call and say, I'm going here, like, who should I yeah. talk to, what should I do? Yeah, Eventually. we do do that, yeah. I mean, and far, it's far more me asking uh, asking him for, you know, advice and contacts and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the only time we ever had a little bit of a, of a spat between us is is that, we were both trying to interview Muammar Gaddafi, and 
and he swears he told me that he was trying to trying to interview Gaddafi the New Yorker, and I I never heard heard it, and so I actually got to interview Gaddafi, and he was when he heard that I was going off to Libya to to, to do the interview, he was he was kind of pissed off. <laughs> that is truly the most unusual brother to brother spat I have ever heard of. <laughs> I doubt that has been replicated. There might be other people who siblings who tried to interview a, a world leader, but one story I wanted to ask you about just because it was it was sort of interesting from a almost like uh, industry perspective was you you did this piece uh about Putin and about uh the apartment bombings in 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 and around Moscow and uh, it was a GQ piece and I was just reading some of the coverage around it that it uh it ran in the magazine but then was sort of like put into the memory hole what right. uh, what happened with that that piece really quick background on that there basically what brought Putin to power uh, in in uh, 99, 2000, was th- there was a series of apartment building bombings in Moscow that killed I, something like 300 people. There were five or six apartments were blown up, and it was blamed on the Chechens. Putin had just come in as the new prime minister under Yeltsin, and he just went into Chechnya and just laid waste. And, of course, his popularity went through the roof. And but there were always these rumors floating around that... that uh, and maybe it wasn't the Chechens, that it was actually the FSB, which mm-hmm. Putin had been the head of. And so I I went to Moscow and, and kind of investigated the story and, and really came to the conclusion that it's, all, it's almost certain that, in fact, the FSB did the bombings. And, in fact, murdered someone who was... And murdered, m- look, look murdered the Litvinenko, the, yeah. guy, the guy who was with the polonium in London, who was, who was a former FSB, who had been very close to Putin and then had basically defected... And yeah, it was murdered in London. So when the art, when the article was done, the head lawyer, the head legal counsel for Connie Nast, wrote this memo saying, "Okay, well we'll publish it. But we're not going to publicize this uh, this article in any way. We're not going to let any other Connie Nast publication or, or or have it appear in any other GQ, GQ issue, or, you know, uh, edition around the world. Basically, just to bury it as much as possible." The, what was the re- was there a stated reason? No, there was no stated reason, but it was it was very clear that they that the the Russian government had leaned on them to just try to bury the article as much as possible, and to, you know to give it no coverage. I was to do no media, so rather than just kill the kill the story outright, because I think my editor was gonna was gonna quit if uh, they did try to kill the story. So it was basically just try to make it disappear. Right. Um, you know, I got I got a copy of the memo <laughs> that the legal counsel wrote, wrote, and I just thought, you know, I'm not I'm not going to roll over for this. So I went to NPR with it, and uh, it kind of created a little firestorm. Did that cause them to change anything, or no, or they... no, didn't didn't really change anything. Well, one one thing it did do was it so a team of of uh, you know un, kind of underground journalists in Russia translated the article and, and posted it online. Mm. So it did get some play. I mean, you know, these things usually backfire when yeah. we try to kill a story. Um, so it did get some attention in, in Russia. But I was getting, you know, I got death. I mean, this is the time when Putin was really riding high in Russia. And, you know, so I got I was getting death threats, you know, through the, you know, over the Internet and stuff for daring to besmirch his reputation. And did it change your ability to go back there? Have yeah, probably. There? I think it'd be probably even now with the way with the way Russia's gone, um, I think it'd probably be pretty risky for me to go back there. That that sort of leads me to another area that I was interested in, which was, you know, when you when you think about you, your work when it goes out into the world, how much do you think about sort of impact 
uh, that the work has and and how do you think to yourself about that impact like there you have an example of someone sort of trying to keep the piece out of certain hands and when you're writing the piece do you think i want this piece to end up in certain hands i want certain people to read it because it will initiate change i think that's always the 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 conceit or the or the the ambition and you know, especially if you're writing something you know for somebody like the new york times i mean you know that the magazine is you know it does go to the kind of upper levels of at least of you know the american government and you you, you hope that it has some kind of impact i can't say that you know i can't point to very many things i've written and say that it really did have that much of an impact but i i think that you hope it will Obviously, there's some exceptions, but I think in general, it's there's kind of a cumulative effect. You know, if if it's not one article about what's happening in Darfur, it's it's ten people and mm-hmm. ten, ten photographers going there, and there's this kind of cumulative effect where it it, it forces its way into people's consciousness. The sort of uh, impact on on you in the man who tried to save the world. I mean, it's I wouldn't say it's like a hopeless book. Like there's a lot of like rays of hope in the book, but it is true that it's it's such a grim war, and it's such it seems so pointless uh, in many ways, and that the, this like incredible man was lost for like reasons that aren't entirely clear. I'm I'm just curious in your in your sort of like in your non-reporting life, how does that affect you in terms of your relationships with other people and like your your kind of attitude towards the world? You turn it off. I think there's there's kind of a process of disassociation that you that you do. I, and one thing I noticed I, I started to do, if I went straight from a war zone right back to my life in New York, the jump was just too too shocking. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and the funny thing, and I don't think I know I'm not unique in this that coming out of a war zone and coming back to you know the the, the real world or or your normal life, civilian life, the overwhelming emotion I always feel is anger. When I come back, uh, it's not sadness. It's it's, but it's it's anger, mm-hmm. and I think that's really common for people, and I think it's common for soldiers too. And, and it's it's hard to really tr- trace a straight line why why it's anger. So you know, if, if I had just been in Darfur or or Chechnya or something, they come back and people are talking about you know the TV shows they watched or or a football game, I, I could find myself getting really just pissed off, I guess. So I started doing this thing of, of just going to a neutral place um, and, and just like checking into a hotel for usually London. Just going to London for a couple of days, checking into a hotel, watching TV, getting drunk, and just decompressing on my own uh, rather than to come straight home. And that, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like going into a little decompression chamber. <laughs> um, and that, that seemed to kind of help. And I know a lot of, I know a lot of like, photojournalists and, and war reporters do that also. Um, it's different for me now. I have, uh, I mean, I have a, a little girl, uh, six years old, and, um, I think I'm kind of done for like, you know, Live shooting wars. I did see a recent bio that said former war correspondent. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I think it was in Smithsonian or something. Right. <laughs> I don't know if they added That's that funny. in for your benefit. Maybe, maybe I had to say, maybe I should mention that to them. <laughs> I mean, it would have to be something so extraordinary and something—it's something that I felt only I could get. 
And it's a cliche in this business. I mean, marriage didn't change me, um, but have, becoming a father did. Um, you know, you just look at that little face, and you, 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 all of a sudden you realize you've got a responsibility not to do stupid, stupid things mm-hmm. and to try to stay alive as long as possible. I don't know if it's really changed my view of humanity at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, my view on most war is, is a really rather simplistic one, which, which is that I, I think if you, if you – and this might go to this – this might go to – why I don't do a lot of reading before I would go to a conflict zone, because I really feel that what's at the root of so many wars now, modern wars, unconventional wars, it really just comes down to a, a bunch of young guys with access to guns, kind of coming up with the pretext to, you know, to rape and murder and pillage and steal from their neighbors. And I, I, I mean, I, I think you see that in, you know, you, you see it in all over. In, in Uganda, uh, Sri Lanka, um, I think you're seeing it play out all across the Middle East today. And, and you can give it a religious or a political uh, pretext or justification. Uh, Bosnia, you know, it was just, I mean, it was just a bunch of young thugs with, with guns. And so, you know, and so it's always been in the back of my mind that, like, the more you try to give it this historical context, you talk about the Balkans, you know, this, this supposed, like, centuries of feuds and, and, you know, ethnic and religious tension. But the more you try to put it in those contexts, in a way, you're, I, I feel you run the risk of justifying it, when I think a lot of the stuff is actually a lot simpler. Mm. It's just young guys with guns. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting because your most, your most recent book is, is actually, it's all historical. And in some sense, <laughs> right. it is like contextualizing, in a way, what's happening today, but through this particular lens of T.E. Lawrence. That's a story, you know, that... People think they know that right. they is so famous and, you know, the movie and all that. And what made you decide to sit down and say, OK, now I'm going to I'm going to tackle this history. Right. Yeah. You know, I'd spent so much time in the Middle East. And, and what I what I discovered is whenever you'd have a, a detailed conversation with someone in the Middle East, no matter their, you know, their, their political, their religious affiliation, invariably people would say, you know, the, all our problems go back to the peace that was imposed on the region at, at the end of World War One, and, and and it really was a period of history I knew very little about because I don't read. <laughs> so so it's always into a fray. So it's always in my mind that you know it would I, I would I would like to go back and really kind of explore that that period of history and I and in part what sweetened the deal was you know knowing that this was the period that T.E. Lawrence you know he played a very pivotal role mm-hmm. in that um, but also you know t- I was when starting out was you know how much of T.E. Lawrence was real how much it was you know he a charlatan or, you know or a, a, like a self-promoter uh, you know incredibly enigmatic figure so and it and it coincided with the t- with uh, the birth of my daughter um, and so it came at a time when I when I really did want to kind of get, you know get off the streets for a while, um, and uh, yeah. So I had never really done a project like it before. I'd never done any you know historical um, writing before. Yeah, or even even reading in association with right. your other stories. <laughs> right. So what, what, how how uh, how different did it feel? I mean, in your fiction, you can sort of. Uh, you know, animate people, and then in your journalism, you can go get their stories straight right. from their mouths. So, what? How did it feel to like take the archival approach? 
You know, it was it was. I mean, at times tedious. Um, but the funny thing is that so I, I, I mean, T. Lawrence is the main character in the book, but then there's three other of his contemporaries that are they're kind of uh, close. You know, it's kind of the supporting cast. Um, Lawrence, I think there have been seventy or eighty biographies on Lawrence over the years. So, so there, it, actually, researching Lawrence, it's just how you contextualize. There's nothing new to find out about Lawrence. I mean, he has been picked over. There's no, there's no, you know, suitcase of papers up in somebody's attic <laughs> about Lawrence that, that hasn't been discovered. So, doing the research on him, it, it was, it was really just, you know, going back to the the original documents that other people had cited. The, the fun part was the other three characters characters because uh, far less Uh well-known and certainly in one case not known at all and kind of trying to find it it was kind of a treasure hunt of of trying to find papers about them and um, and so that was kind of fun and I have to say it was kind of there was there's always a tension when you're doing a, a piece of journalism um, of getting getting the right people to you know, to, to interview and, and tracking people down and not taking no for an answer, and it was kind of nice working on a piece where everyone was dead. You know, so I didn't have, it was just like I didn't have to put up with any resistance from people. Right, they're not going anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it kind of nice for that reason. Did it make you feel like you wanted to do more more of that, or you wanted to return to? I've just signed to do a. Uh, another book uh, on the early Cold War. When, mm. And if there's anybody alive in the period I'm looking at, they're very, very old. Um, and I, I mean, there's a, there's a handful of people, in, like in their 90s. I, I like the, the, the kind of the way, you know, popping out to do a story. It kind of quickens my blood a bit, and, yeah. and, it, and it, it just it enlivens me. Uh, in a way, I've always felt that between fiction and, and journalism too. That um, I mean, the wonderful thing about writing fiction is, is you you just create this parallel universe, and 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 when you're really in, really into writing a novel, that parallel universe can feel more real than your own own world. And it's kind of wonderful in that way, but it's it also you know you're you're so living inside your own head. Yeah. And it probably to the detriment of, of fiction. I, what I what I did find with writing a novel is like each time you leave it and try to come back to it. I mean, you kind of do so at your own peril. And I think it's a limited number of times you can because you've you've lost that yeah that feeling it, of being inside. It takes that longer world. to get back into it uh, <clears throat> to to resubmerge. But it's so introspective. It's so cerebral. And then to kind of pop from that to to being out in the field and and uh, as a journalist and being on the hunt of a story and and. And and really having a, uh, what I noticed about myself, just having a very different personality when I'm as a journalist <laughs> um, than my than at other times. In terms of how you approach people and being and being on a, yeah being on a story and 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 um, yeah, I mean I can be I mean somewhat shy and kind of polite person in normal life, and I, and I can turn into a real asshole when I'm when I'm on a on a story. I mean it's just you know if 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 some somebody or something is in my way of what I want to get. I'll, you know, I'll just try to blast through. Do you have a particular set of approaches when you, when you get dropped in somewhere, you know, Darfur, uh, like I do this first, I do, then I do this, then I do this, or is it more, I'm going to feel it out? Feel it out. I feel, yeah, I always, you know, it's, and it's funny, this kind of goes to why I don't, well, I don't know if it goes to why I don't read about a place before I go, but it certainly goes to, to what happens to me when I get to a place. I, I spend quite a bit of time just really being kind of adrift in a place and just trying to, to, 
feel it out. And usually by about day four in a new place, if, if I haven't been before, I kind of feel like I have... I kind of have things figured out, and invariably that is wrong. <laughs> I kind of am at sea for quite a while, and it's really more about after about like say three weeks where things you know really more start coming together for me. And so I'll off, I take a lot of dead ends. I'll I'll look for different like storylines, and sometimes they work. Sometimes you know sometimes like you know like with the Turkish hunger strikers, I I went to Turkey with the idea that 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 was a story I was going to do there. Um, and because it, just from hearing about it and, and you know, re- reading a little bit about it from afar, it just seemed to me to say something about Turkey. Um, because, you know, these people were starving themselves to death and, and doing it in this, in this really clinically, this, this scientific way where by taking vitamins and, and, and uh, compound salts, they, they extended their death for for like over like nine months in in a straight hunger strike you die in two months tops these people were dying for nine months and it was this this like meticulous and just an off i mean starving to death is just a hideous way to die and so why are they doing it and the ostensible reason why for this hunger strike was that they were protesting this new generation of prisons that was being introduced in Turkey that were, was following the EU model of prisons, these kind of s- small modular prisons. And it's like, really? These people are, no, it's, no, they're not, that's not why they're, they're killing themselves. And, and, you know, so it, it's a, it's a window into a different, into, into something else about Turkey. And basically what it is, is, you know, these are people who, you know, have just been, beaten over their heads their entire lives in a variety of ways by the Turkish system. I, you know, even from the get-go on a, on a story like that, I felt, okay, here, Turkey is an incredibly complex country, really complex history, but here, here's a way to, to kind of get underneath the surface of this country that's kind of the Middle East, kind of Europe, kind of a Europe, you know, European wannabe, and yet there's something else going on there that would draw, you know, drive people to to commit slow suicide. I, I think the, the stories I've always had the hardest time with are the ones where it's, it's like a straight, straight out conflict, um, mm-hmm. like, like Darfur or like right. my story in Lebanon. You're um, almost sort of trying to explain to people who aren't familiar with it in some way, like, what is the story here? How can yeah, I understand this? Yeah, and, 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 I, it, and getting caught up in, in trying to chase headlines or, or trying to stay current is I think is always, at least for me is kind of a problem. I like doing things that are more kind of meditative and, and slow. And uh, yeah, I think probably my least successful pieces overall have been ones where there was there was an immediate conflict going on, and I went there and you know didn't try to write about it. And I had a tight deadline to do something, and almost voids the possibility of the of the of the kind of storytelling I like to do. Yeah. You did this other piece, I think it was Times Magazine piece about, I feel like it was one of the earlier pieces from the Iraq war of people coming home, soldiers coming home. I think it's called bringing it all yeah. back home. And that I actually just thought of it because it's sort of uh, reminiscent of what you described about yourself in some way as this sort of decompression. Right. And the particular characters in that story were extraordinary. And I was sort of, how far did you have to canvas to to find those, I, I mean that story is actually a good example of the, the kind of approach I take. I and it, it was it was easier to do it that because it was in Western Pennsylvania, but I spent a year and a half going. I, I met those guys. I met their plane when it landed at Fort Dix, New Jersey, when they'd just come out of Iraq, 
they went through uh, de- demobilization at Fort Dix for about 10 days, and I, then I was at their their hometown in western Pennsylvania when they came off the buses and met their family. I wondered if, the, if that was a recreation. No, no, I was, I was there. For the first couple of months, six weeks or so, after they arrived back, they they didn't want none of them wanted to talk to me um, because and it was all about like kind of getting back you know almost all these guys they're national guardsmen so almost all of them had wife wives and kids and they just wanted to get back to their civilian lives and and their, their, um, and then after about after about six weeks almost all of them just like went over a cliff and started to have real problems so I spent quite a bit of time out there and and just uh, altogether probably talked to. And I know, probably about twelve or fifteen of of the seventy some odd guys who had who had gone, and again it was like the the girl I was mentioning the the Turkish hunger strikers. I I don't know what it was, but it was uh, with this one guy. He ran a little a uh, uh, plants repair shop. His name's Chuck Chuck Norris, but something told me to watch him, and 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 I can't really put my finger on what it was. He was really a very gregarious guy, very friendly, had a wife and and two kids. He ended up really just, uh, just, I mean, really going very, very badly. Uh, his best friend had been killed, and something he said very early on, he seemed to feel some guilt because he hadn't been with his friend when he was killed. Um, and there's a very complicated relationship then with Chuck and and the the, the dead soldier's widow, and um, so it became this kind of story about these small group of people and you know, dealing with the fallout of war. But those are the kind of stories I, I love to do. I love to take, uh, you know, a lot of time with it. I, I did a story of uh, about this this guy who uh, murdered his parents when he was 14 in Indiana and and went up as a... He was, he, he was waived into the adult system, So he and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison at the age of 14. He's now 34, 35. And um, I spent three years just going out I mean, not not every month, but I, but I actually talking to him all the time on the phone, emailing with him, and and made four or five trips out to Indiana, and uh, you know interviewed him in prison, spent whole two whole days in prison with him, just talking with him. The the, the luxury of being able to you know just take as much time as I want on stories, mm-hmm. and and I think you just get a, kind of a such a richer texture if you if you can just let a story unfold in the time it needs where do, where does that luxury come from like did you carve that out for yourself and and sort of without like asking you some you know how much money you make like <laughs> financially has that always been a sort of uh going proposition to to have that much time darfur for you know or or foreign place you know for 6 weeks or this type of reporting where you're going every month for over a number of years I've been very fortunate in that I, uh, I've never had to do journalism. I have a, I'm part owner of a bar. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> so, it, and it, you know, all, it does, it, it's not the cash cow all my friends think it is, but it, it does make enough money. So it's that, a good like, business. It's I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it always seems crowded less, when I'm there. Yeah, it's becoming less of a good business all the time because the rent keeps going up. <laughs> well, they put it in the high, it's right next to the High Line. So yes, now it's, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm sure when you opened it, it was not the prime. No, no, not at, at all. Now is. Um, we should say the Half King, just so okay, people. Yeah, the, the Half King in Chelsea. Uh, we, we've been in business for 14 years. So for the last 14 years, you know, it's made enough money so that I didn't have to do something I didn't want to do. Oh. It didn't make me rich, but it, you know, it, it just it just meant that I it didn't have to go off and do a stupid story. And so I think in that way it's it, you know, I've had this great luxury of 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 kind of very 
really carefully choosing the stories I do. And yeah, I, I, you know, I, and I think the, the New York Times, the magazine has just been great in allowing me to take as much time as I, I, as I want on, on stories. You, you also, you, when you do a story, you don't tend to do a sort of light stories. Like you don't tend to do like a, a, a like a heist, like a fun. I mean, a, a thing that feels like a little more. This is just entertainment, and I'm wondering if you have that impulse, or maybe that gets put into fiction instead. It's actually a great question because I do. I I was just reading an article in, in GQ. I think it was in GQ that I thought was hilarious, and it was about this a counterfeiter um, who counterfeited two hundred million dollars, and, and just a great voice and 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 uh, great great sort of main character. And see, main character. I mean, I even use like sort of fictional. <laughs> right, yeah. I don't know why I haven't done those sorts of stories because I, I think I'd probably enjoy doing them, but I I just haven't. It may some it, may, it might be that it, like fiction is sort of my outlet for that. I'm curious, like looking at it, the perspective of having a daughter, would you would you sort of encourage her and also having a brother who's a foreign right. correspondent? Like, w- would you encourage her to be a war correspondent? What if she what if she at some point says to you, all right, I'm, I'm ready oh, to trek off in the world and join the sort of family business? I would I wouldn't encourage her. I, and part of it is just hypocrisy. But part of it, you know, I, it's just getting so goddamn dangerous out there. It's just I mean, it has changed so much just, you know, since I started. I mean, I you know I can remember in Salvador as and as savage as that war was, as dirty as it was. As a journalist, you could you you know you put you you put tape on your car saying TV or Prensa Press, and you could cross you know you could go across no man's land between rebel held and, and government held territory, and people did it all the time. And that has just gradually changed over the years. In Bosnia, the Serbs, when people did that with their cars and put mm-hmm. TV on it, they were they were using it as like a target. And then it's just got you know now you're at, at you're at ISIS in in Syria, and you're at, at you know the number of journalists are being just being killed everywhere because as war has gotten more savage, the people who are, who are committing these atrocities they don't want witnesses, they don't want eyewitnesses. I've lost a, a number of friends over the years to you know. To the, in different wars, so I I I don't know if I would. No, I certainly would encourage my daughter to do it. And I don't know if I'd really encourage anybody to do it. now. you know, it's funny. I, there's a whole whole generation of young journalists came out of like Tahrir Square. You know, mm-hmm. and, and um, I mean Tahrir Square was easy. You know, it was like it was it was it was it was kind of a make believe. I mean, not make believe, but you know, it was it was very manageable. It was in this one square. It was very photogenic, and. So a lot of those guys, mostly guys, some women, um, you know, then they went on to Libya. Libya was a very different story, much scarier. And then, you know, moved on to Syria. And, and you know, I mean, Syria is just, you know, it's just kind of hell on earth now. And now you can't cover Syria. I mean, it's, 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 it's a virtual death sentence to try to go in. So, you know, I don't know what the future of this, of this profession is. And it's funny you mentioned my daughter because I was just thinking the other day, I, um, the last story I did, I, I, it was going back to Bosnia and looking at the Srebrenica massacre mm-hmm. of almost 20 years ago and talking to people who, of course, who'd lost people in that massacre. And, and, and I tracked down this guy who had, had participated in, the, in it, a Serb. And I, I remember when I was doing this article thinking, God, you know, I'd, I'd really have to write something that my daughter could read. <laughs> you know, <I> like, <laughs> so maybe I will start doing you know, light stories. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good enough reason to start getting into that. Write about butterflies or something. <laughs> something she can read before she's 18. Right, right. 
All right, well, that's as good a note as any to end on, I suppose. Um, so thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I thank really you, Evan. It. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's long-form podcast. Thanks to Scott Anderson for coming in. If you're in New York, go to the Half King. Uh, check it out. Have a drink. It helps Scott Anderson, and it's also a fun place to go. Um, and buy his book about Lawrence of Arabia, which is great. Um, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thanks to our sponsors, Tiny Letter, of course, and also Wealthfront, which is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. You can go to wealthfront.com slash longform, check it out, get money to invest. That seems like the place to go. All right, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.